Hi, this is Ellen Barnett back with you again with Smart Women I Know. And today we have a real treat. We have one of the smartest women I know, Jasmine Martisorian. I, I do know, I, I did a little bit of research on your background and know that you uh, studied at Northeastern. You were in international relations, then you went into law, policy, society for your PhD. Um, and then you jumped into technology, which in, in my mind, and I'm really not terribly familiar with these things, but in my mind seems like a big leap. And, um, and you've made a tremendous career, which I could, we'll probably get into all the little places um, at some point here. But how did you get into technology and what about it attracted you to it early? Well, um, great question. It's all kind of related. It seems that, you know, the international relations, law and policy, digital marketing, how do they relate? They actually relate strongly. Think about it. We're working in a global environment. I've been blessed to be working with many multinationals. So a lot of what I do in marketing, it's all really policy-driven or creating policy. And actually, organizations big and small fail or rise depending on how they deal with innovation, with their policies, are they strangling innovation? So, so it's all connected. And digital marketing is the cutting edge of marketing that's constantly evolving. And it kind of goes well with my personality too because learning is not just a one-time activity. Okay, you've got a master's, you have a PhD, now you're done. You have to keep constantly evolving. So digital marketing is right up my alley because it pushes me to improve all the time. <laughs> now, I would imagine though, uh, we're in Boston. Um, Boston is obviously a large tech sector still there are legacy companies, and in the C-suite, oftentimes there are people that don't really understand um, digital marketing and, and what's possible. Um, is Does your role take education at all? I think in anything you do, no matter what you do, you have to have conviction about what you're doing. You have to be open to evolving yourself seeing new possibilities, perspectives, worldviews. By the way, that's why most policies fail. When some new information presents itself and the decision makers have not factored it in at the outset, and then they become too hesitant to look at new information because they feel it will make them look bad, uh, and they do not change the policy. So similarly, no matter what role you're in, would be digital marketing or whatever else, uh, you have a job to do in that you know you have to know what's the best practice and you have to make a case for it because any organization that brings in experts brings in to benefit from their expertise right so it's being able to communicate that it's also about communication and also you have to create excitement about what you're doing because it, it better be important and you better be passionate about it how do you create an excitement about it Good question. You, a, starts with the belief. You have to be excited about it yourself. There's no way you can make somebody be excited about it if you're not interested in it yourself. Right? Yes, It's, it's infectious. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, the same thing goes for just about any decision we make. I mean, some people sometimes are more influential than others. Pay attention in f- circles of friends. Usually there is one or two people who are influencers. They're the ones that will say, oh, we're going out to this restaurant or to this movie. It's because they're more excited about the prospect. Maybe they've done more research. Maybe they've gone into it deeper. It's the same mechanism. That's really interesting. So, so you started at Intech. Intertech. Intertech. And um, you started with content, correct? And before then, I was at CSA Group in Toronto, which uh-huh. was a competitor of Intertech. And there it was about market research. Ah, really? Oh, that's an excellent perspective now that user experience is so much on the, on the front. Yeah, and, and also knowing the marketplace, the trends, where everything is going. Uh, and it's the certification and testing industry, both for CSA Group and Intertech. So again, it was an industry that is not conventionally tracked by the Wall Street. You know, textiles are tracked. Software is tracked. Uh, certification and testing is not tracked, partly because it's exceedingly complex. And, I, you know, there is an element of luck in everything, right? Being at the right place at the right time, but also being able to recognize an opportunity when it presents itself. So, and you saw that. So I was really lucky to be at the right place at the right time at CSA Group, where they, they yeah. were trying to understand the industry, and that's where my policy and research background came in very handily. But then it allowed me to identify opportunities and have a better sense of the industry and come up with strategies for the future. So. When you were first in, in your first few roles, were there people, women, men, that were influential, that helped you along the way, that you maybe looked to as, as models or guides, um, or, or did you, were you sort of self-evolved? You know what, no, but no person is an island. So we have to work on ourselves, but you can't self-evolve in a vacuum. So it's, I've also been blessed by being surrounded with tremendous people, be it mentors, bosses, friends, colleagues. And you have to build bridges and also be open to learning, right? Uh, be open to also to, if you have ideas, share. You know, if you have interests, share. Uh, if they can kind of stretch you further, be open to that. You know, don't work from no, but operate from yes. You know, volunteer for more stuff than is on your plate. Most people very often will say, oh, you know, this is what I'm doing. Well, then you're closing yourself off to opportunities. Frankly, 10 years ago, the position that I'm doing today just did not exist in the marketplace. Really? Yeah. Nobody would would be driving SEO with the same kind of strategic approach, looking at content in the same way, looking at digital positioning in the same way, it just did not exist. And even today, universities are not keeping up with churning out enough people. Again, and universities have to evolve too. The whole curriculum development approval process is way too slow. So they can't keep up with what's happening in the marketplace. So 
you moved on from from that role into PTC. Uh, from oh, for to Leslie, Leslie from Intertech, I, I went to Leslie, yeah, which was again a very interesting situation, higher ed institution, uh, which needed to change its marketing. We were very successful there because we completely redid its online presence. Before you couldn't ever find it on the top of uh, you know any relevant non-branded searches on Google or any other search engine, and it's continued to dominate there. Uh, it was really driving digital transformation at Leslie. And the good news was that the leadership was really into it. Higher ed institutions usually move very, very slowly. Um, and I remember a former, they had this uh, temporary fill-in CIO type person who one day stayed behind and said, Jasmine, this is not doable. What you're proposing uh, takes years for institutions. I politely smiled. But it did take us months, not years. And we did deliver. So where there is a will, there is a way. I mean, Clay Christensen has talked about a lot of universities going out of business in 15 years. I mean, maybe not 50%, as he says, but quite a few probably will have to change their ways or be gone. Uh, because it is a disrupted, in, uh, well, it's an industry that was not disrupted for the longest time. Right. But they have to change their ways to survive. Absolutely. Um, we could go on forever about legacy organizations, but I, I want to go back to Leslie because I saw firsthand when I was working with them how you drove SEO was quite interesting to me beyond the sort of digital aspect of it, but the fact that I, I watched a team of people all gathered in a room who had never been before been given certain responsibilities about content and and guidance about how things needed to be delivered and and you taught all of us you you sort of ran us through a weekly meeting and and got an entire staff of people on board and able to work the digital force you were creating on the other side of this. And to maintain this, which um, you, you were building human capacity at the same time. I found that incredibly interesting and inspiring. Well, thank you, Alan. That's very nice of you. Uh, really, what, what you witnessed, and I was so glad you were part of that team, because you were also helping us with some content writing um, is uh, really driving digital transformation and change management. And it's, it's got to be a, a dual thing. Yeah, and you can't do digital transformation without managing change because it, it's all about asking people to do something they haven't done before, asking people to look at content in a different way, trying to prioritize differently, you know, looking at new processes and approaches. It's all about change. But our, our people, what I found remarkable is that change, as we've just discussed, is very, very challenging at an organization like a Leslie or like any university. And you had a mix of young and old. Mm -hmm. And you had a lot of people that had been doing it, doing their job, 
being rewarded for it for years. And you were new. And yet, the way you delivered it and the way that you inspired the room was something that I, I actually took away and learned from myself. Um, because there was a certain honey to it and a graciousness. There was no condescension. And to me, that was really the key to how you drove it. But it, it also wasn't coddling. And you were asking people to step up a lot. And that's what I, I thought that was brilliant, how you were able to manage both. Again, thank you for saying that, but it's, it's about inspiration. So all of a sudden you're coming and asking people to do lots of new things very differently. You better believe in it yourself, and you better be able to communicate the love and passion for it to them, and also explain the why, right? Yes. So change management without a solid communication of the why behind it just will fall flat on its face. So it's really important to, and it just, it just about anything, by the way, digital content too. It's really important to not say, oh, we're the best at X, Y, and Z, but explain why, that value proposition, that benefit, and why it matters, why we're doing this. Not be capricious about it. I mean, it's totally tied to parenting. I mean, which parent has gotten great results by saying, because I said so? No. <laughs> right? Yes, I I 100% agree with you, but I think I think we could also take that philosophy of why and and apply it directly to content itself. It is, but it's really tied, right? We have to make a case and again, we need to speak to people in terms that are understandable. So a lot of the work I do is really laden with a lot of technology related stuff. But that doesn't help my case because then a lot of the terminology itself could be intimidating to people. Like So instead of doing that, it's important to create mental associations that can be relatable to anyone, any layperson. Like metaphors? Like Absolutely. Metaphors or you know comparisons. So they know the why of it and it's relatable because otherwise coming with some kind of esoteric technical <laughs> concepts will just not help anybody's case. I, it, 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 and it worked, and it worked, is, is what really happened. So then, what I do recall is that at that time you were, you were telling me how you had, you know, you were itching to travel more, and, and um, it wasn't long before uh, PTC sort of snagged you, and you were the director of global strategy. I was the senior director of the uh, global uh, online strategy. Global online strategy, yes. And suddenly you were traveling a lot. Suddenly I was tra traveling the whole time. And at Intertech I traveled a ton, right? I think something like 35 times in seven years, in six years. <laughs> Leaving the country, not, uh, not counting traveling within the U.S. Wow. So, and at PTC, you you drove their well. We had strategy. to drive their globalization as well because you see, it's not enough to rise on search engines in the English language in the U.S. or say for U.K. If you have 
presence in Germany or in China, and China is an entirely different case because of their government regulations, you have to apply the same rules to the local markets. You have to start calling it the right naming convention or whatever the marketplace is using. So to just think that we can kind of do it without, by just having a translation localization firm do it for us without involving the local players, without the local validation, just doesn't go far enough and you end up spending a ton of money without the payback you're looking for. How did you know that? I was, again, I was very, I've been blessed because I've worked at international companies pretty much most of my career. So that makes a world of difference. And um, I'm naturally curious about other cultures and people and languages. So you always establish relationships and you try to understand, you know, uh, how it's working in different geographies. So you, you have to stay really informed. And then when it comes to digital marketing, we have different rules about even opt-in, different legislations that govern the systems. But people don't realize that the majority of web content created today is actually not in English. It's really? in other languages. So if we plan to be competitive in other geographies, as any multinational, you have to have presence there as well, digitally. How did you find transition and change that you were bringing in various offices um, in your travels as a global head, I mean, did they accept it easier? Is it harder for uh, our culture? It, how, how are they different? I have found pretty much, it's interesting for, you know, PTC had to train people from South Korea to Taiwan to China to Japan to Germany, France, you know, all different geographies, different countries, different cultures. Uh, it's how you present it. And frankly, the bulk of the training is the same, but the approach based on cultural norms can be slightly different. Do you learn that by trial, or do you? did you sort of, was it somehow intuitive? I'd say both. You have to really be, I mean, when you travel, it's like every pore of your body is like your your skin is open to new knowledge you're absorbing. Yeah. Like you're very alert and attentive to new information. At least I am. Uh, so it's about relating to the culture. And generally if you're working with companies that are headquartered in North America and it just doesn't matter where they're headquartered. Usually, there is a natural tendency to have more attention on headquarters than on satellite locations around the world. So anytime they're getting any attention, they're very collaborative because it feels special to them. And it's really important, too, because a lot of companies make the mistake of having headquarters and not extending the infrastructure to other locations globally, yet expecting the same results. Right. And then the other locations, doesn't matter what company it is, right? Mm -hmm. The other locations are kind of hesitant to ask for help or, you know, they do not know how to articulate that. So in essence, that the work I'd be doing already has like willing cooperators and collaborators because it helps them and it empowers them. It, it, it also helps strengthen the flavor in the local marketplace because no multinational wants to 
come across in any market, oh, this is we're a fly-by-night you know, night operation for you. Or, oh, by the way, yeah, we care a little bit. That's not the message you want to communicate. No, that was, that was an enormous amount of travel. I mean, I, you know, it, it, every time you and I spoke, you were in a country, out of a country, <laughs> into a new country. Um, was that the kind of travel you like to do? Or would you prefer to travel um, with your family or, or alone? I think it's different experiences. You, um, very different experiences. I mean, when, when you travel with your family and it's a vacation, it's a very different quality of time. When you're there, you're there to work. Sometimes, you know, you, I've had to work 16-hour days. You know, you work eight hours on Asia time. You go to dinner, you come back, you work on U.S. time. And you can sustain that only so much, right? But it's, I've always been willing to pay for the weekend and stay there and kind of learn more about the culture um, out of pocket. Like, I'm already there, so uh, why not? Any, any favorite places? Any place where I'm at at the time is my favorite place. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, no preferred, like, Asia, Europe? I think every place has tremendous virtue. There are, you know, very few places that I've been to that I would not go back to. Have you... Uh, did you travel a lot when your daughter... Her name is Susan, Susan right? Yeah. yeah. When your daughter was young, did you and she travel... Together, I know my daughter and I love to do. Oh yeah, I, I huge, and we, my husband and I, we always made sure she, she was acculturated to travel. We took her around with us. Uh, you know, when I was serving on the board of trustees for CAI Community Associations Institute, and the board traveled the time, so I would take her even to board meetings in different locations. Absolutely. Uh, because it opens uh, people up to experiences and learning and seeing a diversity of approaches to just about anything. Uh, I think travel is highly educational for kids. I also think there's something to be said for loving your job and and appreciating when there's travel involved instead of saying, oh, I've got another trip. Oh, that, that's, again, it's a, a frame of thinking. Yeah. If you look at it that way at life, yeah, it is disruptive. I mean, come on. I mean, last, last year I was probably running out of dry-cleaned clothes <laughs> routinely because I was never on the ground <laughs> enough. And is that inconvenient? Absolutely. I mean, would that take a toll on my husband a little bit? Absolutely. But again, you have to look at anything in life with a positive or negative outlook. I just choose to be positive because being there is no virtue to being negative. None whatsoever. Well, and, and it's sort of the philosophy you went um, in, in raising Susan. She, she was always the child of a working mother and a woman that had to travel. And so she grew up understanding that culture. I never was conflicted as a mother about that. There's nothing um, wrong when a mother is working. It's, it's actually a very unhealthy mentality to put pressure on women not to work. If anything, it shortchanges their children. 
and creates trauma and stigma completely unnecessarily. I grew up as a child of a working mother. My mom was a professor, and I was very proud of her being a working mother. I thought of her as a very accomplished person. So I, I never felt conflicted that my mom was working. Actually, it was a point of pride for me. And so, and my grandmother worked uh, when my mom was growing up. So it's, to me, it's not a conflict. So I, I never saw it as a conflict. My husband likely did not see it as a conflict. We were very aligned, and that's really important in raising a child that the parents are aligned. Um, and recently I saw a study out of Harvard that talked about kids are working mothers being better adjusted socially and higher achievers. Really? Yes. That's, that's wonderful to know because now I can rest. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Think Thank about, God. No, think about it. The kind of the struggling, uh, internally burning woman from the 50s that's on, say, Mad Men, right? Mm -hmm. The non-working wives that are at home. And you know they're miserable. That's just a very short-lived social phenomenon that has not been part of humanity. If you think about it, women always worked, historically. They worked on farms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when the they were earth. agrarian societies, they had to work. Yes. They worked in factories through mm -hmm. the industrialization period. Women worked. This whole stereotype of a non-working woman is a very novel and artificial creation. I, I have a very strong belief in it. I watched, um, I have a mother who is technologically brilliant. I mean, she's so sharp. And in her, in her 70s, she got into a software that she was the 800 number, I can fix anything lady. Oh, wonderful. For a very complex software. She's that kind of person. That's delightful. But uh, she was not... She had a full scholarship, and her parents didn't let her take it. And her whole life, I think, she did not, she did not benefit from nowhere to put that intelligence. See, that's a loss not just for her, but for society. I, I believe it, that she, has, she is um, incredibly organized and has a, a very sharp tool to use and and lived her whole life without really being able to translate that into action and um, and so I I personally subscribe to what you're saying that if if my mind were left idle I wouldn't be better for my child I'd be worse I think it inspires kids you know, so instead of guilt-tripping women into not working, and there is sometimes you hear social pressure or veiled references about how could you be a good mother if you're working, those are completely artificial constructs. So in essence, it's the tyranny of or. Somehow women are told you have to either be a good mother or a successful professional woman, but you can't have both. And actually you can you just have to learn what aspects of certain things to just give up on or not stress about, you know. It, and that's really important to succeed even in, in what you do. Right. 
but always, always a challenge and constantly has to be looked at again and again and again to make sure that the priorities that you want are actually rising. See, I'm not sure, like, again, this is like a philosophic aside, but is guilt a good motivator necessarily? Or is it not? Yeah, well, I'm Catholic. I, <laughs> it's sort of the only thing I've got. <laughs> well, or is it, is it like squeezing uh, creativity out of a person? And, you know, it, it, to me, it's important to think from possibility. You know, negativity will always be there. But by that token, we shouldn't even walk down the street. <laughs> you yeah. know? Absolutely. Well, and you've raised a daughter who is now an attorney in her own right. Is she with a big firm? Uh, she has her own practice, and she has some partners with whom she collaborates. And uh, we're very proud of her. She is very with it. So I would safely say my working has not uh, <laughs> affected her negatively. Wonderful. Uh, so, and, you know... She's very capable, and we encouraged her to travel abroad, uh, to study abroad as part of her undergraduate work, because again, that opens up horizons to, you know, really knowing that there are other perspectives, other worldviews, to be agile and flexible, to work with different types of people, settings, again, worldviews. Yeah. Is there any one type of person or area that that has been a challenge for you? Have, you? have you found any sort of interpersonal challenges with work um, or within the sort of the social construct of being mother that's working? I know myself, um, and I haven't gotten very far. I've only got a 15-year-old, but I have, for many years, I was the the mother that was working, believe it or not, and that says a lot about um, the, the fortunate aspect that I have had a child in private education, and often that's quite different. So it's interesting if, if there has been anything, I've either ignored it or <laughs> chosen not to see it or been in <laughs> some kind of denial, because, no, I, I, you know... You shouldn't apologize for being a working mother, period. You're working because you love your child, you want to succeed, you want to provide the environment for a child. You know, in my daughter's case, she went to private uh, school. And that was, how do you pay for all that stuff? You have to work. So there is nothing wrong with being a mother. I mean, no woman should apologize for working and being a mother. It's interesting, I was... Um, a few months ago, I was at a business dinner, and I was the only woman. Uh, there were three guys, and one of them, we were talking, somehow the topic of working women came up, and one of them started reflecting on his mother, and he said, oh, my mom did not care about me. You know, I was kind of self-made completely. He was a self-made millionaire. I was completely safe, self-made. My mom had no time for me. She was working three jobs. And I'm like, excuse me, how is that not love? Yeah. She worked three jobs to provide for you. Is that not right? And he stopped and reflected. And he said he'd never thought of it from that perspective. And so I think that it's like this social interpretation of the loving mother. 
that should not be working and just, you know, spending time only with the kid, that that's love. I mean, if a woman is working three jobs with no rest, that is a loving mother too. Yes, we would all want to be socially in a place where nobody has to work three jobs. But like, isn't that love? Indeed, indeed. I was, I was going to ask you, it transitions a little bit. Um, when you're a manager, and you've been a manager for years, mm-hmm. um, you've got all kinds of different people, mm-hmm. all kinds of different um, personality types, and you're, part of being a manager is hopefully um, helping everyone to rise a bit. Mm-hmm. We live in a cynical culture. And I have been witness often to people that start from a place of cynicism or, or negativity. Um, and it, I also know as a manager that it's easy sometimes to almost dismiss those kinds of people when that continues and their colleagues thrive. Um, how, do you, how do you work with that? Dismiss the colleagues when, and as a manager. Again, it's about inspiration. Seriously, we spend a long time at the office. So if you're going to be unhappy about your day so much and not be interested in what you're doing. That's what Steve Jobs said too, right? If you wake up too many days and you're not liking yourself what you're doing, change it. Like, first of all, people should have that internal conversation with themselves. If they're that negative, they have to have the courage to make a change or to look at what is actually making them positive and live in gratitude. That's the other thing, right? Being grateful for what for the positivity and again seeing the positive every day every instance any situation we can see the positive and the negative the glass is half full the glass is half empty or completely empty or overflowing <laughs> it's 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 a worldview and a perspective so a lot of people kind of live in prisons that they build around themselves and they don't see it um so it's being and most people and not you know absolutely every person is probably not performing to their nth degree of capability. Again, it depends on how much they're seeing the possibility. So it's being able to inspire people to have the output and to work from strengths. Like you can take a, a lot, and a lot of our management philosophy works from weaknesses. That's interesting. Tell and me more. So if you look, I mean, there's now a lot of talk about changing performance reviews. Like, as a manager, when it's time for the performance review, there should be no surprises. Because if you've sat on a situation for a whole year, and now you're presenting it to your staff member during the performance review, and it's the first time they're hearing about it, that's... You have failed as a manager. That's not acceptable. So honesty. Well, it's honesty, transparency, and in the moment, because if there is an opportunity for improvement and you sit on it for six months or a year, you've missed that opportunity for improvement. It's not fair to you, to the organization, or to the person who is 
possibly not performing. It usually should also be issue-based, not person-based. We can all improve certain things, so it's not about the person. So you have to know how to communicate that, like not to come across like, oh, you suck as a person. Yeah. It's like, okay, let's look at this, and can we do this? And also present the why, why it's needed. Yeah, yeah. Because our stakeholders appreciate when we proactively inform them of the status of something, right? It's, it's communication, too. I mean, things could happen. So usually how we deal with that, that makes the whole difference in the outcome and in the perceptions around it. And it's really important to work from strength. Like some people are really gifted in certain areas. But again, the standard management approach in most organizations is then to start harping on some weakness somebody has. Well, maybe rearrange the structure to work off of the strength because you don't want to disenchant that person. And Because if somebody's not an amazing opera singer, they're not going to be an opera singer or ballerina. But they could be a tremendous programmer, but they may not see the design implications of something. Yes. So realign resources to work off of people's strengths. And that takes a little bit of vision. Well, you have to, again, appreciate every person as a human being. Because it's, every person is different, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. People have different strengths. People have different weaknesses. And that's part of being human and appreciating the human condition and working with it to drive improvements. But again, in a constructive way. That's interesting. You, you know, you're, you're at Skillsoft now, right? Yes. And it is a learning platform. It's, it's a, the world's leader in e-learning. It's a wonderful organization. And, you know, we actually, our mission, the work we do, helps organizations become better by having better trained workforce. Right. Which... And it actually empowers people to learn more and to progress to grow in their careers. Which aligns with just what you've said. Totally. Uh, that's part of my major attraction, to, among other factors, to Skillsoft, because we're doing mission-critical work that's actually really benefiting humanity and the marketplace. That's very rare. That's very special. That is a wonderful place to end. And to say thank you so much for sharing so much. Well, thanks for having this discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, this has been another edition of Smart Women I Know. Uh, join me again. And you're a very smart woman yourself. <laughs>